Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in sport, society, and culture. This week, my guests are Chris Anderson and David Sally. They are the co-authors of the brand new book, The Numbers Game, Why Everything You Know About Soccer is Wrong, published by Penguin. As Chris and Dave explain in the interview, they both do research in the behavioral social sciences. Chris teaches political science at Cornell University, and he currently has a research appointment at the London School of Economics. Dave is an economist who is currently teaching at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. In their new book, they apply the quantitative methods and theoretical approaches of their disciplines to the top European football leagues, seeking to explain why clubs, managers, and players behave in certain ways, and what are the real results of that behavior. Do the teams that shoot the ball most often get the most wins? Is possession of the ball really the key to success? And who is the more valuable player for a club? A top goal scorer or a top defender? These are a few of the questions that Dave and Chris address in their book. And as they acknowledge in the interview, even they were surprised by their findings. This is a book in the best tradition of applied social science, written for the general reader. There were several passages that I read out loud to the soccer players in my house. I enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed my conversation with Dave and Chris. Here's our interview. On the line from London is Chris Anderson. Chris, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thanks, Bruce. Nice to be here. And on the line from Ithaca, New York, is Dave Sally. Dave, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thanks, Bruce. I'm glad to be here. So I'll ask you both to say a few words of introduction to start. The, the acknowledgement section of your book says a bit about your backgrounds as both fans and athletes. And uh, Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, can you tell us about where your interest in, in football developed? Well, that was quite some time ago. To, to date myself, I, I grew up in Germany in the 1970s, and the 1974 World Cup was hosted by West Germany, and it was a huge, huge national event, as you can imagine. And uh, at the time, there wasn't much on television other than uh, soccer, and, and so the kids after the games were over, would reenact the games. And, and so I got into soccer as a, as a kid through the 1974 World Cup and then ended up playing soccer for sort of all through my, my youth and eventually gave it up uh, when I went to college. So uh, that's kind of how I got into soccer. And then I ended up moving to the U.S. Uh, after college and became an academic and forgot about soccer for, for 
a couple of decades, honestly, until I had kids myself who started playing soccer. And uh, another World Cup came around, the 2010 World Cup came around, and I thought, well, this, the, there was this thing called Moneyball and Baseball, and that, that seemed kind of interesting. And I, I'd read the book by Michael Lewis, and I thought that that, that could be done in, in soccer too, perhaps. And so I started looking for things, and I ended up talking to Dave about it one day, and we started talking about it some more. So, Chris, I'll ask you, though, uh, so you weren't following in those, uh, in those decades after you gave it up and came over to, uh, came over to school in the States? You weren't uh, still following the Bundesliga or soccer in Europe? I really wasn't. It's, it's kind of curious. I kind of, uh, kind of went cold turkey after I moved to the U.S. I moved to the U.S. in 1988, and at the time, there really wasn't much soccer on, on TV. It was very difficult to follow, and it, as you recall, mm-hmm. MLS, MLS didn't exist yet. Uh, it only came into existence. The internet didn't after, exist yet. So. <laughs> the internet didn't <laughs> exist, right? After the 1994 World Cup is sort of really when MLS started, and, 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 and uh, then eventually, you know, you could also watch it on TV. So for, for many years, I kind of had no connection to it uh, whatsoever. And Dave, you were an athlete as well, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was. I, 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 I was a Chicago kid. I grew up, I, I grew up uh, on the playgrounds of Chicago, which meant that I was uh, mainly a basketball player. I grew up actually on the uh, south side of Chicago um, in Hyde Park. So I was the only white kid on my bas- my school's basketball team, and I grew up on the asphalt courts of the South Side. Um, uh, but we also had, in our neighborhood, we also played a lot of baseball, and uh, the one game we didn't play much of was soccer. Uh, actually, we didn't play at all. We played ice hockey, we played baseball, basketball, and all the American sports. So I, so I grew up mainly an American sports player. I played baseball in college. Um, I, I was a pitcher. Uh, which explains, I, I think, a little bit of my proclivity for statistics when I wasn't when I wasn't pitching um, as a pitcher in, in, in baseball. When you're sitting on the bench, you're uh, you're supposed to record the stats of the guy who's out there on the mound, and so uh, you, you know that gets infused into your being, I guess. Uh, so I came to soccer late. I guess I was probably a typical. American sports fan. I certainly paid a lot of attention during the World Cup because it was one of the, as Chris was saying, uh, the World Cups were, would be one of the rare times when we used to have soccer on TV. And uh, and then my, uh, actually what started me uh, to, to get more into the sport is my oldest son, who's, who's um, probably a decade older than Chris's kids, uh, and in, is in his mid-20s or so, like a lot of mid-20 American kids, really started to get into soccer, uh, became a big Chelsea fan, uh, and we started watching a lot of matches together. So I was I had done a few years of that before Chris approached me with the work he was doing on his blog and started to talk through some of the ideas, and that's what eventually developed into the book. I, I should say for both of you, your your areas of academic expertise are not in the study of sport. Chris, you have publications on voter behavior, parties and elections, comparative politics in Europe, and Dave, you do work on uh, psychology and economics, organizational behavior. But and I'll ask you to elaborate more on on how this project started because before the book, you two have been collaborating on a blog, Soccer by the Numbers, which which led to the book. And looking back on it, you have uh, you, you did some considerable work in terms of graphs and and regular regular posts on the blog. So uh, what what led you to uh, collaborate on on this blog? 
Yeah, well, it's a long sort of backstory, but it started out as a, as a kind of as a fun project, the blog, uh, because I was looking for people who uh, might be doing uh, statistics and soccer kinds of work, and there weren't that many people doing it, if any. And so I started the blog just from for my own fun, and people started reading it, and and it sort of went from there. Um, but if you sort of my academic work is not entirely unrelated and, and I'll let Dave talk about his expertise as well because it's also quite related. Um, uh, I'm a behavioral social scientist and what that really means is that uh, my tools of trade have to do with sort of quantitative analysis of people's uh, opinions, behaviors, and uh, sort of uh, social behavior, political behavior, and those kinds of things. And um, in many ways, this sort of soccer or any kind of team sport uh, or game really is about people trying to compete with one another to achieve a goal. And it's it's a kind of behavior, social behavior, and individual behavior that's easily studied and understood using social scientific uh, tools. So, uh, so the blog plus uh, my my sort of academic background kind of came together and, and my sort of own back history as a as a soccer kid uh, came together to uh, uh, to lead to lead me to Dave to talk about soccer and numbers and how you know what makes teams win and lose and do certain kinds of things and in some sense the the, the book is not that and we definitely don't want to scare off readers so I'll, I'll draw the right analogy but but I'll, I'll state it bluntly to begin the book is really just applied social science and applied behavioral economics and as chris said behavioral social science to soccer and to what goes on in the pit on the pitch and what goes what what role the manager plays and how you build a team uh in the same way that social science looks at how you build teams within companies um uh, parties uh in politics and so on now hopefully and our intention was to do this very much in the same manner that uh, somebody like Malcolm Gladwell is a genius at, and we don't we don't uh, uh, pretend to achieve what he achieves, but but hopefully in a very approachable way. Glad what Gladwell does is take some of the cutting edge stuff that's going on in economics or political science or sociology and apply it to very real world real world phenomenon, and and in our case, that's just soccer. And I would add one more thing. Uh, I think the, there's quite a bit of a... So we don't want to give people the idea that this is just a whole bunch of charts and a whole bunch of numbers. I think there's really two parts to the book. One of them has to do with us actually analyzing some soccer data and, and going through various things that happen on the field. But there's another part to the book that really talks about the use of numbers in the sport and the politics uh, and the psychology of using numbers to understand this game and, and within the the industry of soccer, which is quite a sizable industry by now, especially over here in Europe, um, you know, there's a there's a the tried and true and the old fashioned ways of doing business, and then there's newer, more modern, and different kinds of ways of doing business. Just like Michael Lewis told a story about baseball and moneyball, those kinds of things are happening in soccer over here and also in, in, in North America as well. So. Um, the, the politics of it, to me, are quite fascinating as well. So there's kind of two, two legs to this book, right? There's the numbers of the soccer numbers, the soccer stats, and then on the other side, there's sort of the, the politics, economics, and psychology of, 
of using numbers to understand this game. The Reformation, as you call it. Yeah. And there's, let, <laughs> yes. Let's not forget the third leg that's in the book, which is lots of gripping tales of great characters. Yes, yes. And yes. Great matches and so on. So and it's, and, and yeah. I'll jump in here and say it. I, you've both have said we don't want to scare away readers. And I, I'm a historian with a humanities brain. Uh, I, I, I study culture. I study art. It is really a chore for me to read hardcore social scientific articles out of academic journals and and your book is anything but that it is very uh very readable and and even the charts the charts have the effect of aha i understand what they're <laughs> what they're talking about so uh so i will add the uh the warning to readers to not be to not be uh scared by uh by the idea of a social scientific uh quantitative approach to, to studying soccer. So we're going to talk about some of the specific findings that you in, include in the book. But before we do that, I want to ask you both, uh, what is the one discovery that you made about the game that has most surprised you? Oh, I think I'll come out and say the one that surprised me the most is how little soccer there is in a soccer match. Um, I think one of the uh, sort of things I used to believe was that a, a game of so- a game of soccer is ninety minutes and ninety plus minutes, and that you see ninety plus minutes of soccer. But when you actually look at the numbers, what you'll see is that the ball is in play much, much less. And so, and the the typical professional match here in the Premier League, for instance, the the ball will be in play only about 60 minutes that's much less than 90 and then if you look at the individual players uh, and how much they get to touch the ball with their feet which is sort of what football slash soccer is meant to be about really i thought um you know the uh, on average a player gets to touch the ball less than a minute per game and to me that was a pretty stunning revelation yeah that was something i read out loud to my sons who are both soccer players i i was stunned by that as well I guess on my end, um, I was probably most surprised, but also most pleased by this section late in the numbers game where we look at uh, the effect of superstars relative to the weaker players on the pitch. And the, we, we present evidence, um, a, a variety of forms of evidence to, to show that um, in fact, the superstars in the game, the Messis, the Ronaldos, do have a big impact on whether your team wins or loses and how many points you get from a given match. But um, the players who have a bigger impact, at, that the game is fundamentally a weak link game. It's determined by mistakes. It's determined by uh, weak connections between uh, players. And it's ter- determined by the, the, the weaker quality players, the, the, the players of relative, uh, relatively weaker quality uh, will be more deter- will have, will have a bigger impact on who wins the match and who doesn't. Um, and that to me was, uh, that was a finding that was grounded. And we may talk about this later, where there's grounded in a lot of behavioral economic theory about um, certain kinds of teams uh, uh, that are set up and, and in certain kind of economic situations where it is a weak link kind of uh, phenomenon. Uh, but, to, but to see it prove out in the numbers uh, was really interesting. And then to see that it, it's a theme that unifies a variety of, of uh, moves that a manager makes um, during the course of a match or during the cor- course of a season uh, kind of unified a lot of different things, and I thought uh, in a very interesting and surprising way. 
Well, that actually ties into uh, a question I was going to ask about uh, from the first chapter of the book, uh, which is really, I think, the, the big theme in the first chapter, but it also comes out uh, throughout the book. And, that, and that's the question of, are results in a match do more to skill or to luck? What did you find with that? Uh, I think we, you know, that's, uh, I think our, our, our finding basically is that it's probably, roughly speaking, equal equal amounts of skill and luck uh and and what's notable about that um is that that is definitely not true of most of the other major team sports that we think about uh games like basketball baseball are not are have nowhere near that amount of luck involved in in the final outcomes obviously um uh, it's it, it luck does not uh, does not vanish in those games. It still matters uh, if your uh, if your quarterback gets injured uh, in, in the Super Bowl. That's going to really hurt your chances. And and if the ball bounces a certain way or takes a bad hop, it's going to matter. But but it's so fundamental to soccer. And we come at it a number of different ways in the book. We look at we look at um, what the odds makers say about how predictable. Uh, soccer matches are versus uh, basketball games and baseball games. We look at uh, we look at some research by a number of different uh, people who have actually sat through. There's there's a there's a research group in Germany where the 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 one of the one of the items on their research agenda is to sit and code every goal in the Bundesliga for ten or twelve years. So they sat and they watched every single goal and coded whether there was some element of chance or luck involved in it. Uh, so through a variety of ways, we try to come at th- this idea of, well, how much luck is really involved in a given goal and in a given match? And the number, the rough number that keeps popping out is somewhere around 50%, uh, that half the game is luck. And that makes it a very, very different game uh, than, than many other sports. Why is it then that you see a Manchester United and a Real Madrid and a Bayern Munich at the top of the table every year. If if uh, uh, if there was more luck involved, if it, if it's a roughly fifty fifty mix of of luck and skill, wouldn't you see uh, a greater movement up and down the table? So no, the the idea is that uh, any one game. Is, is sort of a 50-50 on average. Okay. That doesn't mean that there isn't also 50% of skill involved, yeah. right? So if you take out the, the, the half, let's call it a half, that is luck and chance and, and the ball bouncing in a, in a funny way, there's still 50% that you can control, if that's one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And that 50%, of course, has a lot to do with skill and, and technique and coaching and, and good organization and so forth. So, and, when, great ta- and let's not forget great talent and the wages that you pay. Yes, and, and all kinds of things that make Manchester United better than... Uh, the LA Galaxy, and so uh, those factors do end up mattering, of course, over a number of games. When luck evens out, when you play a long enough season, then those teams that have those advantages will do better overall. So, um, think about this: with the NFL season is a relatively short season, it's a, and because it's so short, luck plays a bigger role than if it were an 80-game season or a 160-game season where over over many, many, many iterations, the more skillful, the more talented, the better-paid side team wins out. 
Yeah, and that's and that's a good comparison, right? It's uh, the 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 length of the season in the NFL means that even though in a given in a given game, um, what's the what's been the crappiest uh, the crappiest NFL team? The like Jacksonville those? Jaguars. Jacksonville Jaguars have have a very small chance of beating. Uh, the New England Patriots in a given in a given game a smaller chance than um, a team like Wigan yeah. uh, has of beating Manchester City in the in the um, in the FA Cup final. Yeah, yeah. But over the since it's only a game uh, since it's, the season is only sixteen games, it means that there's actually a little more churn in the in the final standings than you'd have in the Premier League with its thirty eight uh, match season. Where as Chris says the the skill uh, and the the effect of of um, organi- better organizations of better talent with 38, 38 matches will prove out um, more clearly. Yeah. So Dave, you brought up Wigan, and I was going to actually ask about that because you you, you do write about Wigan Athletic in your book. Uh, was Wigan Athletic uh, winning the FA Cup this past year? Was it was it more of a case of of luck or skill? Would you say then? That's a good question. I think I think it's I, I think they probably had equal. I, uh, uh, why why not hue to our party line, which is they probably had equal <laughs> equal amounts of both. Um, uh, in, in the book, in the numbers game, we, we one of the things that Wigan had going for for it on its side was it had a a, a manager in Roberto Martinez, who we we profile at a bit of length in the book. Um, who we think is actually a very effective manager and did a tremendous job with a very low wage bill, which meant he was getting players that were toss-offs and, and leftovers from other clubs and, and that other clubs weren't interested in. But what he had a facility with was great flexibility and tactics, a willingness to uh, violate conventions in a number of ways, and, and, and a willingness to do what he needed to do to organize organize his guys and and get them playing as effectively as possible. So, so I, 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 in my mind, I think that I think they probably had equal amounts of both in that particular match. So you do talk about Wigan, as I say in the book, and another club that you talk about uh, quite often, and in fact, it features in the uh, the early conversations that lead to your collaboration is uh, Stoke City. Uh, so, what is it that's about Stoke City that uh, that so attracted you in your analysis? Well, the the Stoke City is is a is a football club that plays a kind of unfashionable type of soccer. And so, if you think about other sports, there's sort of you know there's the Detroit Pistons and then there's the LA Lakers yeah. in basketball. And sort of there's there's a right way of winning and a wrong way of winning. And then Stoke in in soccer is is known to be sort of one of those clubs that that don't play a very pretty kind of soccer, but that are very playing a very effective kind of soccer. And they overachieve given how much they're spending on their players and the reputation of the club and so on and so forth. And, and in soccer, Stoke has always been kind of an interesting talking point, in part because they're, it, it's a game that has a very strong sense of aesthetics, where there's a right way of winning and a, and a wrong way of winning. And uh, a lot of people for years have poo-pooed the way that uh, Stoke have been able to achieve what they have been able to achieve. And so um, it raised for us an interesting question. Um, Does it really matter how you play? Does the style really matter? Is there a better way of winning or a worse way of winning? And the conclusion, we compare Stoke with another club, Arsenal, 
that play a very elegant, a very sort of easy on the eye kind of soccer. And we compare Arsenal and Stoke, and we come to the conclusion, of course, that there's different ways of of of, of, of skinning that cat. There's different ways of winning a soccer match. And to us, uh, Stoke has kind of been. Uh, an interesting uh, example to show that you don't have to play a particular kind of way to be successful. And the the other thing about Stoke was that it, it it was one of the entry points for this entire project that ended up in 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 us writing the numbers game. And that 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 was we were watching we were watching some Premier League highlights together. And Stoke has this player by the name of or had this player by the name of Rory Delap who was. Um, had trained with the javelin and was an incredible thrower of the ball from the sideline. He could, he could, um, he could, he, he would, he would take a towel, dry off the ball. He'd take a lot of time off the clock. Stoke is, uh, to go back to what Chris said earlier, Stoke is one of the teams that play the least football in, uh, in English football and English soccer. Um, the, the ball is barely in play at all. And, and part of that was they the dry the ball off and Rory Jalap would, would hump his way to the sideline and make a magnificent throw all the way into the box. Uh, it start with startling velocity, and it would skim, as we say in the book, it skims along the heads of the of the cowering defenders, and uh, was se- seemingly very effective. So we were watching these highlights. I said, started asking Chris, "Well, that's fantastic. That seems fantastic. Why, you know, what what's going on there?" And and uh, he said, well, that's Rory DeLapp, and he explained his background to me a little bit, and I said, well, why doesn't everybody have a guy like that? That seems, that seems like something you'd want to do. And he mm-hmm. said, well, that just, that just uh, well, it's hard to do. You, you, you know, he's, he's kind of a unique guy, and, I'm, and, and being the kind of ignorant American about it, I said, well, the, what, can't you find a guy like that? Can't you train him? I mean, why not spend time on the practice pitch and train the guy, get him to throw the javelin? And if it, if it works and he said well you know it just doesn't it's just kind of it's just a little he didn't use the word but he but he was saying it's just kind of icky it's just not right it's just not fully proper and i said well but if it's effective what who cares and and in some ways this is as we portray in the introduction this is kind of the theme of the book of a willingness to ask questions and figure out um even if it goes against convention why don't why don't clubs and teams do certain things or why are they doing certain things is it because they are effective or is it because it's just tradition and and picking up on that so uh chris as you said one of the themes of the book is this reformation within soccer this adoption of of more statistical analyses and and dave i'll ask you since you have background in baseball and now you're doing consulting work based on your research into soccer mm-hmm. which which sport do you think is is has been more resistant to this turn in the direction of statistical analyses baseball or soccer oh god it's it it it's so obvious it's it's soccer it it's that's part of what makes it so great um the scene in moneyball where Brad Pitt is talking as it's portrayed is where he's talking to the old scouts and <laughs> all the all the all the stories you hear about baseball and it it is an order of magnitude less um, less hidebound than football is. Football is just it's so culturally embedded. It's so it's so important. And there's a number of fa- I, I mean there's there's two factors if, if you t- kind of step back from the 
just just the 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 impression of it and think about it analytically i think there's there's at least two factors and and chris will probably come up with a couple more but one is just the embeddedness of of the of the game in the in the cultures and the public attention that 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 it has it it just there are there are more rules and more norms and more conventions about what's right and what's wrong uh in that game than even baseball at its height in the in the 40s and 50s uh when it was by far the most important sport in america it just doesn't come close to how important soccer is in england or in spain or germany and 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 most of the other countries around the world and then the second thing that goes along with it is what we know from behavioral economics is that contrary one of the biggest findings of that entire field which has emerged in the last couple decades is that contrary to orthodox economics in 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 which the the assumption always is we'll make the incentives large enough make the make the prizes or the salaries large enough and people will move toward rationality and doing mm-hmm. narrowly rational things uh will will pursue their self-interest when there's a lot more at stake it turns out that 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 behavioral economics has, has discovered no, that's not necessarily true. There are many times when the stakes become quite large when people are making decisions about their retirement portfolios or their salaries or a new house, when they in fact be, are just as convention bound or follow certain norms and heuristics much more than they do when the stakes are lower. And I think one of the things about soccer being so important in and the games and matches meaning so much to people is that various decision makers, whether it's the managers or whether it's executives and clubs, because the stakes are so high, um, they actually become a little more um, heuristic bound and convention bound than than they would be if the stakes were a little lower. Now, having said that, this is sort of the yin and yang of the book. Um, <laughs> I'll start arguing with Dave a little bit. No, just for fun. Um, Absolutely. But, but what the book, so while what Dave is saying is, is absolutely true, uh, what, what the book is also trying to do then is to take a snapshot of where we are in that development as, mm-hmm. as this, this deeply traditional and conventional industry is faced with the reality that, that we're living in a world where you can count a lot of stuff and you can record a lot of stuff on digital devices and computers are becoming faster and software is becoming better and and so on and so forth so they're confronted with the world around that around it that is very much uh, you know datafied and, and there's big data sort of entering our lives in every which way um, and so it's kind of it's in part also then about so the struggle that that this particular industry has and this game has uh, with sort of using those new tools, these different tools, finding ways of of, of thinking about them and using them uh, without fully giving up on what has made this particular game what it is today. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point because if you think about the situation in baseball, you had a very traditional game confronted. Let, let's boil it down to its its essence and and and, and overgeneralize it a little bit. A very traditional game confronted with a guy who was working in a beam canning plant who was hand coding and going back to box scores and that's bill james of course um, producing a fair amount of data um, much of it obviously very insightful but 
but it wasn't it wasn't a huge mound of findings and instead the the contrast that with baseball that that kind of encounter that that worked its way through the sport with as chris says in football you have an even more traditional sport um confronted with not just a single guy or a set of uh, you, you know guys kind of hand coding stuff or going back to old box scores but now millions and millions of data points and all this all this collection this ability to track so much it's a much bigger it's it's a, it's a much bigger gulf and it's a much bigger confrontation on both sides that and that's what makes it fascinating i want to i want to continue with this uh this tension or the struggle between the rational the analytical and and what is bound in culture in terms of of strategy or even even how players uh play on the pitch you know i uh, a year ago, I interviewed Tim Vickery of the of the BBC, and he made an interesting point. He said that, you know, when a ball or excuse me, when a player receives a ball in space, he has a number of different options in terms of what to do: to pass, uh, to dribble, to pass back, to pass forward. And he said that that those decisions about what the player will do in space, those decisions are determined by the particular culture in which. The player was was raised and trained, and and you talk about this somewhat in your chapter on goal scoring. Uh, you look at the the various leagues, and this is one of the maxims of soccer that that the different national leagues have different playing styles. Uh, but you look into it to find or, or to ask, and, I, and I'll ask you what you discovered. Is there any difference in terms of the outcomes from these different culture based playing styles in the different leagues of Europe? Well, I think that's that's a really interesting uh, part. To me, part of the book is 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 that particular chapter, those particular chapters that deal with these differences, talk about these differences across countries and different playing styles. To the naked eye, um, the the playing styles do seem to differ um, across across countries. And if we've if you've ever played in a public park with people from all over the world, you'll you know stereotypically you'll find that depending on where someone's from, they'll play a different kind mm-hmm. of soccer um some will dribble more some will pass more some will be more disciplined some will be more a little bit all over the place and and you know i found myself oftentimes just saying oh yeah of course the way this person plays has a lot to do with where they're from and so children are raised to play the game in a particular kind of way and that that seems apparent to the eye now what we then say in the book is yeah, but hold on a minute. That may be true, and it may look different, and our experiences are different. And there are these cultural stereotypes that inform how the game was learned from from an early age. But when you go and look at the very top of the very top, right, the, the, the best professionals in the world and the very best leagues in the world, which happen to be the four European leagues, England, Germany, um, Italy, and Spain, I'm sorry, uh, that at that point when, when, when athletes players reach that that level of play it turns out the way that they play is actually very similar the things they produce so to speak to use economic terminology uh on the field at at work uh, when they come to work is an awful lot alike across countries so it's not clear to me whether that's always been the case in fact i would argue that probably hasn't always been the case but in in the wake of 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 many decades of trial and error in the game of of global diffusion of knowledge and training methods and coaching and 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 the way sort of and the the equipment and so on the way that that's become so much more alike and diffused across the world at the very top 
they're very much alike, regardless of whether they play in Spain or make their money in Germany or in Italy or in England. So picking up on that and thinking of, of game strategy, do, do managers influence the result of a match? Uh, there is a big debate at the pubs and in people uh, among journalists and among uh, serious fans and among people who study football about how how influential managers really are. Are they are they all that important? And the history of the game, again, which we, we go through uh, a lively, I will say, not not in a dry way, but talk a little bit about the the, the image and the role of the manager and traditionally especially in England, uh, that role has been seen as an all-powerful, influential uh, pillar of the community, pillar of the club kind of guy, a guy who is making all the right chess moves, chess master kind of guy who's making all the right moves. Or uh, if, you're t- if your club is playing like crap, he's making all the wrong moves, and it's clearly his fault completely that you know, you're, you're set up in the wrong formation, that he's not making the right substitutes, and... And we try to look at a, at a little bit of evidence in, in terms of trying to figure out, well, how influential is this guy really? Um, uh, the, he's not the all-powerful guy that, uh, of myth and of, of history. And there's a, a bit of a counter-movement. There are some, some, some journalists, especially through, the, through in more recent times, who have looked at this tradition and said, well, come on. This is garbage. Uh, the manager has no influence at all. It's a player's game. Uh, players determine what happens uh, on the field, and so the manager is really a worthless guy. It's just he's he's just a pop and jays. He's a he's a shadow of a man. He doesn't really have any influence. And 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 interestingly enough, this same debate has gone on in the economics literature about whether CEOs matter or not. Do chief executives of, of big companies do they have an influence on on how the company performs or not? And so, by drawing a parallel with that, that literature at this point seems to have come to a conclusion that in the in the long run, the CEOs are less important. That the leaders of a club or an organization are less important than what kind of product the company is making, uh, the tradition, the history, the, the structure, um, the, the capital underlying uh, a club or company. But in the short run and medium run, when you're looking at things that can change, you can't change the structure of a club very easily. You can't change the history of a club, obviously, uh, at least not without a bunch of years going by. The manager be, turns out to be a very important and influential figure, and and the rough number we put on it, and we say this is, is a very rough number, is he may have as much of, as fifteen percent of an effect on the overall outcome of of a club, the overall stand, the the, the the position of a club in the table, and that again, that's a figure that's that's roughly, and and and, and we wouldn't put a lot of money by the figure, but roughly in in terms of of an order of magnitude that's similar to a figure that's come out of much of the literature on chief executives in top companies. So we're almost out of time. And uh, Dave, you had said earlier that uh, you were using statistical analysis or engaged in statistical analysis already when you were a, a college baseball player. And, and so, Chris, I'll, I'll turn this to you. Uh, when, you were, when you were a keeper playing in Germany, Obviously, statistical analysis was not used that much back then. In the course of your research now, have you found something, have you made a finding where you thought, wow, 
I wish I would have known this when I was when I was playing soccer. I would I would have really put this to use. Well, you know, uh, uh, yes, it is, I played as a keeper, and so keepers are, are strange creatures. They uh, they're both yes, they ter- are. <laughs> <laughs> they're both they're both uh, terrified. Uh, and very brave at the same time. Ah, I, I, nice. I recently uh, read a uh, not too long ago. The New Yorker had a nice uh, uh, piece on Tim Howard, the Everton keeper, who is an American uh, who grew up in New Jersey, I believe. And he he talks about how, how much he hates being uh, on the field and how he can't wait to get it over with. It, mm. it stresses him out mm. to no end. And and I I could really relate to it. And one of the things that I hated. Among the most, uh, I would say, were corner kicks, and I always was afraid that uh, corners, uh, that the other side, the other team would score on us on a corner, and I would have made the fatal mistake that would lead to that one nothing uh, loss for our team. And so we practiced corners a lot in, 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 and as a team during the week and and during the during the match, I was sort of worried about those corner kicks all the time. And so the, one of the findings, long story short, one of the findings in the numbers game that we come up with is that corners matter much less than people think. Now, um, they're relatively useless as a device to score and win points. And the the way to think about that finding is to say, uh, to put it in relation to how important people think it is. So con- conventional wisdom has it, especially in England, that corner kicks are almost the next best thing to a goal. When, you know, the ball crosses the line, but not quite between the posts, uh, at least, you know, your side has a chance to score on the ensuing corner. But the truth is, uh, statistically speaking, they're relatively useless devices. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't teams like Stoke, who we talked about earlier, who are very good at corners or very good at what's called set pieces, um, dead ball situations. But on average, over a number of uh, years and for many teams, the corners matter much less than we think they do or thought they did. And so had I known that all those many years ago, I think I would have slept better uh, the night before the game. But, you know, it's it's a little too late, but still a lot of fun to think about. The reality is you would have been nervous about something else, but that's okay. <laughs> well, probably true. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris and Dave, I want to I want to finish up. Uh, as as you both know well, this this type of quantitative analysis in sport does have its critics, no matter the sport. And and these critics typically cite the beauty of the game, or the artistic nature of the game, or or the unexplained something of the game as as being beyond any statistical analysis. So so keeping these criticisms in mind, I'll I'll ask you about a an artistic magical player. Let's let's say Messi. Can can someone like Messi and what he does on the pitch um when when you look at him, uh do you see something that can be uh explained according to statistical methods or are there players who are just beyond computation <laughs> well uh, beyond perhaps current computation yeah, no i yeah. think when i look at, when i look at a guy like messi i see both and i think that is kind of the point of the book as well is you can you can enjoy the game for the beauty that it produces and the elegance of, of a terrific player with a wonderful athleticism the the glorious moments and sort of the magical nights uh, for where a team uh, wins a, a game they thought they had lost um, all those things are part of the game they they, they produce for me as for everyone else 
the romance that makes it worth following in many ways. I I get goosebumps when I go to a big stadium here in, the, in London in the Premier League right before kickoff. Um, that's got nothing to do with numbers, or perhaps it does, but I, re I don't really care. It's just part and parcel of the fun and the excitement of the game. At the same time, um, you can learn something about the game, and you can perhaps enjoy the game differently if you look at the game through the lens that we provide. It's, we're not saying, hey, you should, you should always look at the game the, the, the way that we're portraying it, um, but it's akin to saying, well, you've got your seat in the stadium that you're always at and the, you're at for every game. Let's take you out of that seat for a moment and bring you down to the field or put you in a different part of the stadium and see if it looks different to you. And maybe that might make you enjoy it more next time you're back at your seat. Um, so we're not trying to replace one with the other. We're trying to complement mm -hmm. what's already there and what's well developed, and that is the understanding of the beauty and the aesthetics and the magic. But we're trying to add to that. And can I follow up on that and ask, uh, what would you recommend to a fan uh, when the season begins who's watching, say, Messi? You know, what, what could they take from your book to gain a greater appreciation of a player like that? I think the one thing that I've learned, and I've learned this both from Chris and, and from our own work, I would say to appreciate Messi, do two things. Um, watch him when he doesn't have the ball. Okay, watch, yeah. him, watch how he moves in space. Watch how he... It, it, now, this is a little hard on TV, unfortunately, because TV likes to focus on the ball and it cuts out... Uh, it cuts out the rest of the, uh, the rest of the field. So you can't always see him, but but usually there are times, at least when, when one of his midfielders has the ball, when, when you can catch him up at the corner of the screen or on the side and you can see what he's doing away from the ball just generally. And I think, I think Americans know this. I think when we watch, when you watch basketball, if, you, if you're becoming a more sophisticated fan, you, you don't just watch the ball. You watch the screening that happens away from the ball. And the same is true in, in American football. Watch the action away from the ball. Don't always watch the quarterback. Watch the watch the line play that's going on. It'll it'll heighten your appreciation for the game. So I think I think with Messi, watching him when he doesn't have the ball is fantastic. And then I would say when he when he has the ball, try to see again, because it's such a geometric game, try to see um what he is seeing. So in some sense when he has the ball still look away from the ball and see how he's trying to read the way that his teammates on, on Barcelona or if he's playing for Argentina, try to see how his teammates are moving and what he's, what he's anticipating and how he is threading a particular pass through. And he's seeing a pass that isn't even there, you know, that you can, you, you can only imagine at the, at the furthest extent of your imagination could possibly be there and he, and he finds it. So that, that would be my advice. So I'll ask you both uh, what uh, what you're working on now. The the book has come out already to much acclaim. So do you have a? Are you already working on on the next next version? Oh, right now we're spreading the gospel of our reformation uh, as much <laughs> as we can um, to far and wide. Um, so we're excited, actually. No, I mean uh, semi seriously. We're excited that yes. the book will be coming out uh, in translation in a number of countries. It's already come out in the UK and now in the US, as you said. It's already been out in Dutch in the Netherlands and Belgium, but it's also coming out in Brazil, Japan, Germany, Italy, Poland, the Czech Republic. Finland, and I might be forgetting a, a language yeah. in a country or two. Um, so we're very excited about that. So for us, this is actually sort of an ongoing 
uh, labor of love as we go through the next several months. Um, uh, we, are, we've, we are thinking about what else we can do with this, um, and there are a number of sort of avenues. They might include another book at some point in the future, but at, right now we're fully focused on making sure that people are sort of, uh, every, everyone understands that there's a beauty in the numbers in the beautiful game. You've been listening to an interview with Chris Anderson and David Sally about their book, The Numbers Game, Why Everything You Know About Soccer is Wrong, published in 2013 by Penguin. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on a variety of topics, from philosophy and psychology to biography and journalism. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.